0: Hello, this is Cracking Charity Chat. I'm Beth Crackles. This episode was recorded in Edinburgh in late February 2020 with Ross McCulloch of Third Sector Lab. This guy knows his stuff. We chat all things digital. Digital transformation, culture, a couple of his key projects, digital trustees and digital leaders, the latter being run through SCBO. We do an unplanned critique of funding support. Ross rants about online forms, and I talk myself into a hole of nonsense at one point. To kick off the podcast, I relay an anecdote about lack of cutlery on the train journey to Edinburgh for you all to enjoy. You can follow my blog at bestcrackles.com to keep updated about new episodes, or you can follow me on Twitter for other sector ramblings. I hope you enjoy listening. So I bought my pasta salad from Martin yep. Spencers, and because um, I eat at the time that children eat, yep. I was like, oh, I need my lunch at like 11 o'clock. And I'd forgotten to pick up a fork or whatever, which Dave thought was hilarious because he loves a bit of bad fortune. <laughs> so I was like, right, I'm off to the, I'm off to the cafe, and because I like squeezed past some people in the queue, the woman who worked there was like, I'm sorry, madam, can I help you? You know, and I was just like, I'm just looking for a fork. We don't have any. I've only got spoons. So I was like, cool, can I have a spoon, please? No, and I couldn't understand her properly, but she was like, it's for the porridge. So I was like, okay, cool. So I went to the porridge, and then I was, like, looking for spoons by the porridge, and she was like, excuse me, madam, can I help you? I'm I'm just looking for the spoons. And she said, I said, I've only got spoons for the porridge that I'm going to sell. And I was like, it's 11 o'clock in the morning, how are you going to sell, like, 10 (laughs) pots of porridge? But I didn't ask her, so... I went back and I was like, surely it happened <laughs> because she's going to sell all this porridge apparently again. He felt this was like hysterical, so yeah, I had to use the top of my keep cup to
1: like oh, that's this grim. That's quite a grim. That's grim, What is
0: wrong with people? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Are you allowed to swear in your podcast?
0: Yeah, I mean, I try not to just because um, I know my dad will listen. Oh, I don't um, really care about your dad so much. Yeah, I don't. My dad won't. My, mm. my dad won't care if you swear. I'm in Edinburgh chatting with Ross McCulloch from Third Sector Lab. Hello.
1: Hello. I just took a drink of water just as you said that. (laughs) It was really professional, wasn't it? How are you doing?
0: Yeah, I'm good, thank you. I love being in Edinburgh, even if it is, um, I mean, it's pretty grim out there.
1: It's pretty miserable. Yeah. Yeah. Scotland's not always like this. Is it not? I mean, I've been a few times. It's always been snowing Um, and
0: everything blown away. Chris O'Sullivan who I've not met but is somebody I've interacted with on Twitter said today Edinburgh is like it's very cold and the sleet is something like tiny ice particles on exposed skin.
1: <laughs> I do not just what snow is? <laughs>
0: Maybe. <laughs> so um, yeah welcome to Edinburgh. <laughs> How are you? I'm oh,
1: Okay yeah I've got a bit of a sore throat so I've got like a very flamboyant scarf. not a flamboyant scarf at all. It's <laughs> grey, but it's flamboyant. i wearing a scarf indoors. Yeah, but yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. through.
0: Okay. Well, hopefully, we'll we'll get through it. Yeah. yeah. Cool. So, we're going to talk about all things digital. We're going to cover the basics, whatever they are. I think I was referring to some practical tips when I put that. Online comms and fundraising and digital transformation. So let's start off at the very beginning because it's okay. a very good place to start with a bit about your background, yeah. what you've been doing and what you are doing.
1: Yeah, so weirdly, are we able to like talk in a podcast about where we're sitting even though nobody else Yeah, we... I'm going to do that anyway. Yeah, really set, the scene.
0: The set the scene.
1: So we're in Nathan's office in HIV Scotland. Who you gonna to chat to later on? Yeah, who I've not met,
0: and I'm. He'll be far more exciting
1: office. than me, so I'll be quite boring <laughs> compared to him. But that's that's okay. So yeah, so my previous job was head of comms with Relationship Scotland, who run the build which HIV uh, Scotland, and but I've been doing freelance work since twenty ten ish, and yeah, so I help charities get to grips with digital in lots of ways, shapes and forms. So that's pretty much what I do. Okay. Um, I developed and I manage uh, SCVO's digital leadership programmes along with Maddie Stark, who works at SCVO. So we've been running that since 2016. So we've got three cohorts of charity leaders coming on it this year. So we started uh, back in January, the first cohorts came through that. And the idea behind it is fairly simple. So it's a six-month-long programme where we focus on specific areas of digital change. I'll talk a few bit about those in a wee second and it's actually although it's six months it's a really short intervention so it's around about six days worth Mm -hmm. of time so it's not a huge amount of time Um, and for each of the sessions we get an expert to come in and talk about a specific topic and then we've got an action learning set approach so in each cohort there's around kind of six to ten charity leaders and they can be chief execs or head of fundraising or head of finance and they're often coming along with really specific issues which might be around um how users transact online or how they understand their users or how they're using data for decision making
0: how do you approach service delivery from a from a digital perspective or with with digital in mind
1: mm. Yeah, so when when we first service delivery it was how we kind of categorized one of the first topics that we'd look at. And then we changed it to look specifically at service design. So rather Because the danger is it's like, you know, I deliver a service in X Way and then what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna stick a digital thing on top of it now, yeah. rather than thinking, well, how are people living their lives? What do they actually need and how are we gonna to respond to that? And again in Scotland there's a thing called the Scottish approach to service design, yeah. which is a kind of not so much a methodology or a model but it's that I guess the approach this kind of aspiration about making Scotland the biggest uh, design school like service design school in the world and there's much bigger oh. appetite and culture I would argue in this, col- in this country perhaps than anywhere else in the world and so we've tried to kind of tap into some of that stuff so the the last speaker that we had covered in Fiona McCara who heads up service design in the Scottish Government's um, social security unit. So basically social security in Scotland is now devolved. I'm going to talk about this as a total non-expert in it, but essentially it's been designed from the ground up. So they're thinking about if you were going to build in compassion into how people get their benefits. And if we think about how people live their lives in 2020, what would a a benefit system look like? Mm -hmm. And that's the approach that they're taking. So arguably it might end up being something that looks completely different from the benefit system that DWP deliver UK-wide or in England and Wales. So that's that's really exciting. So she came in to talk to the cohorts about how they've put users at the centre of that process, how they're starting, not with a blank slate, but they're starting with that in mind rather than legacy systems Mm. and then retrofitting digital stuff on top of it. We've had loads of charities who have used that approach to kind of rethink their services, and it's not about throwing all the other stuff out the window, Mm. but a really nice example. So Lifelink, who are a counselling charity, did a bit of work looking at some of their kind of core services and being realistic about how those services fit within people's lives. So one of the ones that they offer is uh, like postnatal depression support groups. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously a group like that, if you run it at a fixed time in Glasgow on a Thursday night in the middle of November and that person has to travel on two buses for 45 minutes to get to it, and sit in a group with a bunch of people they've never met before. It's quite a scary thing, and logistically it's really difficult. Does that person even have childcare to even come along with the group? So I guess it was an acknowledgement that we're shoehorning people into this really old model of delivery that actually for a lot of people doesn't meet their needs and is actually for some of them a complete turn-off in terms of how they want to engage with it. So they're looking at digital, the same groups, but digital groups and not that you choose one or you come face-to-face, but actually there might be a blended approach that people communicate online and then feel comfortable coming to a face-to-face group or might come face-to-face first of all. And then they have more ongoing communication with other mums in that group as, as they kind of go forward. And it's interesting, actually, a lot of that kind of space, the research that's been done, which shows that it's actually older people that are more keen to uptake some of those services than younger people. So Action did some work looking at their addiction services and what was putting people coming off to kind of face-to-face groups and drop-in sessions. And actually the people that were least keen to do that were the over 50s and they've become the biggest Mm -hmm. user of some of their online addiction support services. So I think there's a real danger that for some of these things we go in with an idea that, well, that's fine because that's the preserve of young people, we still need to do face-to-face for older people, when actually it's the opposite that sometimes are true. Yeah,
0: yeah. So do you think that the charity sector's behind in some of this stuff? That's what I feel like we're always told as a sector. We fill in surveys and say that we are lacking in digital skills and expertise within our organisations, and we talk very generally about like the charity sector needs to light up its game, and we're maybe behind the private sector. But do you think that's true? Or do you think that was true and it's changing? Because that's a great example of reframing how you think about service delivery as a whole and building mm. it from the ground up, if you like, as opposed yeah. to being like, we deliver this thing, we need to deliver it digitally instead.
1: Yeah, so I think, I mean, that's probably the biggest advantage that most charities have got. Even if you don't class yourself as a traditional service delivery agency, you've got, um, they tend to have a much closer connection with the people that are supporting and a much more trusted relationship than a business is ever going to mm. have. And I think that's a really big asset for charities. Where I think things have been difficult is that ability to scale things really quickly. Mm. So that example that I gave, you know, if you're a small local counselling charity, there's only going to be so much you can do. And part of that is financial. And this is where I think there's there's, there's a potential danger for the charity sector, is that ability for tech companies to scale things very quickly, attract investment. And we've seen it, you know, recently if you look at the kind of plethora of mental health apps that exist. So mm-hmm. there was someone from CAS talking at an event that was at recently. I can't remember how many apps he was... Oh, how many did he mention? This is really terrible. I'm going to totally misquote someone from Cas, But I think it was like yeah. 3.6 million apps. I may have made that up. But anyway, a huge oh, wow. volume of <laughs> apps specifically about supporting people on their journey to better mental health. And actually, the ability to capture a huge number of people with a very, very low price point, whereas if you're delivering a counselling session at someone, it's very intensive and it's very, very expensive. And I think this is maybe a scenario where there's, there's often a kind of preciousness within the charity sector, and sometimes rightly so, where people need good, high quality support but actually there's also another bunch of people where self-support is maybe the start of that journey and I think we need to understand how people are using the internet and actually maybe where we work with tech firms and some of this stuff rather than it being like we sit over here and we deliver face-to-face and um, tech firms sit over here and they deliver the kind of lower cost interventions but actually that potential for them to overtake some of the work that's happening in this sector and I think there needs to be greater collaboration between charities to be able to kind of deliver that scale up and potentially using if you're a bigger charity and you've got the reserves do you need to invest some of your reserves into some of this stuff mm-hmm. so.
0: Does that sort of purely digital stuff that perhaps some of the private sector are doing undermine some of the skills and face-to-face stuff that charities doing as well though?
1: It would become a danger if people thought that having an app on their phone is going to deliver exactly the same outcome as going to 10 sessions with a specialist counsellor, for example. But I guess for some people where they can't get that support in their local area doesn't mean that they just get no support. We all know that that's not a good enough alternative. So there needs to be some kind of middle ground where charities have enough of an idea of I guess some of that lower level intervention that they can provide as well as the more intensive work Mm -hmm. you know charity helplines where often actually what will happen is advisors will be given the same information day after day after day Mm -hmm. if you look at things like shelter for example you phone up a shelter helpline about um, a question you've got about housing and probably that helpline advisor has answered that same question 17 times today already Mm -hmm. and actually shelter has looked at ways that they can free up some of that time and that's not about you know people losing their jobs to artificial intelligence or better online tools but it's actually about thinking we want to free up advisors to spend an hour and a half on a really complicated call with someone and who will then go and phone a housing advisor at South Lanarkshire Council on their behalf and really manage that relationship rather than it's just it becomes a robotic experience where Helpline advisors just repeating the same thing over and over. And Shelter have done that really, really well. So the two things that they've done which are really cool. They've got a, um, a really simple AI bot which they set up in Scotland to answer repeat questions about the changes to the private tenancy rules. So basically their Helpline got swamped with uh, with calls around that so Ailsa is a chatbot that sits on our site and you can ask her any question you want elsa. and it, ask Ailsa it's called as yeah as in uh, Ailsa rather than Elsa that's my <laughs> that's accent It's making lie. it sound elsa <laughs> no it's not a frozen time so yes you can ask her any question and basically all it does is it trolls the legislation to provide you with the answer and then it frees up people on their phone line who are just going to be repeating the same thing over and over. and um, really cool one, actually, that Shelter did, which I love, which was about the, uh, the letting fees, which are actually illegal in Scotland. So certain letting fees have been illegal in this country for years, but private tenancy agencies have been charging them anyway because they can get away with it and it's a massive additional income stream. Um, and what Shelter did is they worked with a solicitor's firm, and they set up a really simple online form where you could put in things like your name, um, a wee bit of information about your tenancy agreement, and it would basically self-generate a solicitor's letter. The Successful outcomes of that were astronomical. I can't remember the exact figures, but it was like, incredibly high. And it was a really, really simple tool. More of that type of thinking
0: yeah. from
1: charities can deliver societal good for a much wider range of people.
0: That's a great example. Thank you. Can we talk about another element of this mm. digital leader stuff? Yeah. You mentioned culture. Yeah. What does that look like?
1: Part of it is getting them thinking about well, longer term. What does this look like? And not saying that the culture of their organisation needs to completely change. One of the things we we've actually tried to encourage people to do a bit more is to take deliberate actions to think about what might nudge culture along the way. So things like, is your organisation's culture heavily influenced by the use of emails, and maybe you have a a four-hour meeting once a week with your senior management team where everyone, 12 people, sit around a table and they all tell everyone what they've done for 45 minutes each and then it just goes round. You're nodding because you've clearly been in this meeting multiple times. And actually, I think there's too much about culture where it's seen as these really big, ethereal things when actually sometimes it's about really deliberate actions. I run the charity Comms uh, Scotland group and we had a speaker in from... Skia for the Christian International Aid charity in Scotland, and the guy Ian Dunn, who's done a lot of work to try and improve their internal comms and the kind of practices and culture. Really simple thing that he's been doing, and it's worked really, really well. Is he does these lunchtime interviews, so staff can come along on their lunch break, bring their packed lunch with them, and he'll interview a member of staff. So one week it could be person in the fundraising team, the next week it's someone who works on a project in Malawi, talking about the impact they're having. And basically he's done it as a tool so that people across the organisation can really understand what other people do and what makes them tick. And it's been a really, really nice, simple way of just nudging the culture of that Mm organisation along, rather than it feeling as if, you know, you get an update from the fundraising team and it comes out once a month in an email. It's actually building that kind of human connection. Yeah,
0: the world's a different place. When I spoke with Kat Holloway at Friends of the Earth, she was talking about how they use Slack, the internal comms Mm -hmm. channel for such a lot of stuff. But they have like, I think they call it like a stand-up or something. So Mm -hmm. every every day in the office they just like stand up for five or ten minutes and be like these are the key things going on today this is what's been in the press and yeah when you said I'm nodding at that even <laughs> where everybody goes around it reminds me of um, when a friend told me an anecdote of one of those meetings basically and when people just talk nonsense as well so it got round. so it's on like a big capital appeal or something and the trust person was like so yeah we've been uh, progressing things and moving things forward and um be able to report back on things maybe next month and he was like you've actually said nothing yeah it was more elaborate than that but it was just like total bullshit bingo and they were like okay let's move on like what
1: putting a framework around how you're how you're communicating and collaborating i think can be really important as well so that you're not ending up you know so you mentioned slack and loads of organizations put it in place and actually all that ends up happening is 40% 40% of people are communicating on email, and then everyone else is communicating on yeah. Slack, and you end up with this really fractured workplace. Um, or
0: nonsense takes over. Or
1: nonsense takes over. Like,
0: get your lunch out of the fridge. It's yeah, to start yeah. Yeah. Like that. Yeah,
1: yeah, totally. Yeah. 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 So, uh, a yeah. so really nice one, actually, I heard recently, which was Young Scott, who do, so they kind of youth work charity mm-hmm. up in Scotland. Um, and at their staff meetings that they have, people always bring along, so it's usually, I think this is the one, maybe at the End of the week that they bring along, and they talk about like a piece of research or a development that they've seen this week that's influenced their work or might be useful to others. Mm-hmm. So people will bring along, like, oh, there's this really interesting piece of research on uh, young people from BME communities, and they'll share it with the group. So there's There's a kind of culture there of learning and exploration that you don't get from a standard meeting. I think if you can build things like that in, so it doesn't need to be like, let's scrap everything that we do and we're going to have this whole new culture and ways of working, but just tiny incremental steps and seeing how stuff goes. And I think with all this stuff, the important thing is that you can try something and if it doesn't work, you can always go back to the way that stuff worked before.
0: How can people get involved with... Digital
1: leaders. So if you Google SCVO, digital leaders, you'll you'll get information on the programme that talks a bit more about it. have got an application process we got. I can't remember how many applications we got this year. We've been really fortunate that as it's grown, we've had many more applications and we've got places. So we've been really fortunate that people we've got on this year are in a really good position to take part.
0: Let's talk about Digital Trustees Scotland, hmm. because that's you.
1: Yeah, so... I guess it came from running the leadership programme where lots of people who were on it were finding it difficult to have conversations with their board about digital because there was nobody on the board who really understood what they were trying to do. So the idea is really simple. It's about trying to get people who work in the tech sector onto charity boards. Now, the tricky thing is that you know, realistically, any of them could find a trustee's vacancy at the moment and apply for it and tell people they work in the tech sector and that's what they'd like to do. But in the real world, most people who work in the tech community don't know where to find trustee vacancies. So they don't know that sites like Reach Volunteering or Good Moves exist. But beyond that, most of them don't even know that trustee roles are really a thing. So this, I guess this one probably biggest eye-opener for me is when we started out, we started out thinking, well, people know what been uh, on a board of trustees is the difficult thing is we need to try and like, get them matched up with some charities mm-hmm. but there's actually been a, kind of, a more kind of like, a step back which is about fundamental education as to what it is to even be a trustee in the first place mm-hmm. so we've had I mean, we've had quite a few kind of different speakers and come and uh, talk at the events people from like Oscar who are the charity regulator up here mm-hmm. we've had like tech people who are on charity boards the guy who heads up uh, digital for Arnold Clark is on the board of Paisley YMCA and they're doing amazing stuff with digital now but yeah so that's basically the premise behind it and I guess that danger of a lot of charities at the moment think they have a digital expert and it's not to say that they don't but it tends to fall into one or two camps so it either tends to be a kind of general comms person who's got a bit of digital in the role but they're coming in a very kind of siloed way or it will tend to be someone who works in kind of IT or IT reselling, and they've got a very kind of Microsoft way of doing things. And actually, the danger of that is you've got even more potential to miss out on the opportunities that digital offers because people are looking at it with a really blinkered approach. So we've gone out to kind of communities of interest in Scotland to try and get people along with events. That we're a lot of the communities around service design, and a lot of the data specialists are working in Scotland. So quite a broad range of people and the idea is really simple as we get usually about 50 people come to the event 25 of them will be tech people 25 will be charities who want to get a tech person on the board and um, we get a couple of speakers to come along to help the kind of tech people understand what is it is to be a trustee and then we get other speakers to come along to get the charities in the room to think about the potential that digital offers and then we basically do matchmaking so people come along and they meet a range of different charities and from there, they can think about, actually, well, I'm interested in animals cause. This charity is based in Edinburgh and that's where I live. That'd be a really good fit. I'm going to have a coffee with this person. Or they might go down a more kind of formal, trusty, um recruitment process with that person. But just that simple act of getting those people in a room and getting them to understand what each other can offer has been really good. And I think the other thing, one of the big things that we've kind of learned is... More and more people from the tech sector are less thinking about, right, I'm going to work with a a, a, tr- a charity, so therefore I just need to give up loads of my time for free and I'm going to build them an app or I'm going to build my website or I'm going to come and put a new CRM system in and more thinking about, well, I've got something to offer that's more strategic and is more thinking about how does this charity benefit its users? And actually it might be far less onerous. So it might just be that I come along to... Um, a, a trustees meeting once a quarter, and there's some prep work that goes on behind the scenes, or maybe I sit on one of the committees. Actually, it's far less onerous than people think. Mm-hmm. So, so yes, yeah, so it's been really beneficial. I mean, we've not we've not done anything kind of official to kind of look at. Mm-hmm. So, so yes, yeah, so it's been really beneficial. I mean, we've not we've not done anything kind of official to kind of look at how many people we've we placed, but literally like meeting people. Every single week, we're like, "Oh yeah, I came along at one of your events, and now I'm sitting on this charity board." Or yes, I met someone at your event, and now they're on a board. It's been really good, and now we're trying out these new things. And so it's been it's been amazing. And I get like literally like Twitter DMs pretty much every day from someone going, "I heard from a friend that you can help me get on a board. Who should I be speaking to?" And yes. um, so we'll have another event coming up soon. We've set up a Slack channel to kind of keep things going. So Digital Trustees Scotland. But I guess it's it's been building on work that's been going on for a while now. So like a lot of the stuff like people like Zoe Amar have done and Janet Thorne at Reach Volunteering and uh, Sally Dyson at SCVO. So Sally's been involved in Digital Trustees Scotland as well and kind of helping getting it off the ground and keeping it running. But just a general sense that we need to do more work in this space to get people on charity boards. The thing for me as well is not that now we have them on the board, that's one expert and they're the person that's responsible for all the digital stuff, but actually their role... And helping the other trustees in the board understand what digital is and the potential of it. So they've almost got a kind of educational role for the other trustees that are sitting on the board, too. Mm-hmm.
0: So, this is possibly a huge assumption on my part, but is part of the challenge before you even get to talking about digital, is it about explaining the role of trustees? Because I think from my experience with working with boards, particularly with smaller charities, they they're usually dysfunctional <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so are you really fortunate, or do you really vet charities well so that they're in a place to be like we're pretty normal and well balanced boards anyway, and we're lacking this expertise, <laughs> or do you find that you get? Do you there's, get a lot of basket a, cases? To be honest, there's
1: a total mix. To be honest, so. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if anyone in the world has a good vetting process for dysfunctional boards because there's definitely lots of them out there. Mm-hmm. So I guess it's more about we give the people who would become a t- potential trustee enough confidence to think through the questions that they should be asking. This is this is something I like think Sally's been particularly good at. We've had people like Julie Hutchinson come along as well um, who runs a thing called Trustee Hour, which is a kind of online conversation mm-hmm. around trustees, um, which has been really interesting. But given them the tools to think through what should they be asking so not just oh there's a charity that needs someone I'll just join that board
0: but doing some (laughs)
1: due diligence you know simple things like you can come along and you can be an observant at a charity board you don't actually need to be on the board so you might come along for a board meeting and you might sit in on a board meeting and then after that make a decision because actually you might not have been to any of the board meetings and then you go to your first one and you're like, Christ, these people are not people I want to spend time with. Yeah. Or actually, um, I didn't look at the accounts and this charity is about to go under because there's been malpractice and now I'm on the board of this. Mm-hmm. This is not what I signed up for. So we're given, I guess, giving people some of the skill set to do some of that due diligence stuff. Um, the charity regulator in Scotland's got, like their website's really good and has some really good stuff around if you want to be sitting on the board of trustees, here's some of the questions you need to be asking, here's some of the things yeah. you need to think about. So we'd always kind of signpost people to the stuff that's out there. For me, the real thing is, you know, no matter what size of charity you've got, there's probably not going to be a single charity, apart from the dysfunctional ones. Most charity boards in Scotland will not, not have someone who's some kind of finance expert. So Every single one of them will have someone who's an accountant or has some kind of equivalent area around finances, if we know how people live their lives in 2020 and your board doesn't have anyone who knows anything about digital, that should be on your risk register. Like, that's a Mm. massive issue for you as an organisation. And I think that that's the space we need to be thinking at. It's not like, we've got this kind of niche expert in and they're going to talk about digital. It's like, if in 2020 none of your board knows anything about digital, that's terrifying.
0: Yeah, and having a website is not it.
1: No, exactly, Yeah. (laughs) yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah. so how can people get involved with digital trustees
1: yeah so if you if you google digital trustees scotland you'll find information and you'll get the link um, we've got a very clunky mailchimp holding page which you'll find where you can kind of sign up for the the events updates and it's got a link to the slack channel as well if you check out my twitter account so at third sector lab this is just a shameless way for me to get followers just now yeah you've got yep. a lot of followers. Yeah, I'm going to get more after this podcast, I've decided it, yeah, yeah, yeah. totally, loads. <laughs> um, the last event we had was at Nestor's offices in Scotland at Edinburgh University, so we had about think, 60 people come along, so half of them were tech sector, half of them were charity sector. We had uh, a speaker from someone who's on the charity board who's a tech expert, and we had someone from the charity regulator coming along as well, and then me and Sally Dyson ran a couple of sessions thinking about For the tech people in the room, what information do they need to feel comfortable before joining a board? And Mm -hmm. then for the boards in the room, what is it that they actually need from a tech expert? So we're trying to do a bit more work, not just about the matchmaking, but really kind of shaping, if we're aspirational about this, what what does it need to look like so we can kind of move stuff forward?
0: That Um, sounds really good.
1: Yeah, so it's been it's been it's been really exciting. I think for me as well, it's like it's not a big, massive, complex thought process. It's literally does my charity have someone who understands digital on the board? Yes or no? Yes, great. If the answer's no, what are you going to do about it? And that's mm. that's all really worth thinking about.
0: Okay, cool. Thank you. So let's talk about digital transformation. What does it even
1: mean? What does it even mean? Who what knows? is it? I don't
0: know. When we had our chat on the phone previously, you mentioned care saucer as an example mm. of like how I guess other sectors are are doing stuff and reflecting how people live their lives really well and yeah. we need to not um become extinct. So so when I was reflecting on this, I thought it's quite interesting like this what am I actually saying here, because I've written it down and I wrote it like a week ago. <laughs> <laughs> let me just think about that. this it. is
1: usually what I do it's like I write notes to myself that make complete sense uh, At when least I write it's written. not my
0: handwriting right <laughs> <laughs> because my handwriting is horrific I sent people thank you cards a few months a month or two ago for mm-hmm. taking part in the podcast and then my friend Kat Holloway at Friends of the Year she was like fuck mate what's wrong with your writing <laughs> It's like thank <laughs> you yeah it's horrific
1: <laughs> it with a crayon as well but, <laughs> yeah. yeah
0: felt oh, tips yeah. running out yeah. <laughs> well done Um so, yeah, I think I think something that is possibly quite relevant to this is this sort of blurring of boundaries between the different sectors, so voluntary, private, mm. public sectors. Yeah. So that's, like, a challenge for us all, I guess, yep. in terms of competition and totally. resources and all the rest of it. And then there's another sort of added dimension. Or am I being really bad because am I... Is that really bad saying that digital is an added dimension? Because no, what we're it. trying to keep say going, is that it's going. not an added dimension. <laughs> I think I'm talking myself into um, a whole of nonsense.
1: No, I don't think you are. So this is where I think there's no easy answers. And There's a whole area of complexity. So there's, there's a few things here. So there's, I guess, a sense in the charity sector that we need to be aware that our competitors are not just other third sector organizations. Increasingly, like the example I gave about you know, the, the made-up stat that I made up from someone from CAS told me about the number of um,
0: billions The
1: billions, there's trillions of apps around mental health, is actually they might not deliver a service that looks the same as your service, but that's someone who's going to be delivering a similar outcome that you're going to be giving to the people that you're working with. So I guess it's thinking about where are there private sector businesses who are encroaching in the spaces that were traditionally your domain and might have been your domain for the last three decades? Mm. And the danger is that we just kind of trundle along doing the same thing because we think people operate in the same way and have the same needs and live their lives in the same way without really understanding that. Mm. And actually, this is an area where when we're talking about kind of culture and we're talking about approaches, digital isn't just buying a bunch of tools and products. It's thinking about how do you Adopt the tools and techniques that that digital organisations have. So, how does someone like Skyscanner understand what people are truly looking for when they book a holiday, and then building a platform based around that? Yeah. So, the, the Care Source example you gave—you know, sort a startup based in Edinburgh that's got multi-million pound investment—and essentially, you know, they're looking at transforming the way that people purchase social care and particularly when you look at things like personalised budgets so people have arguably much more control now mm-hmm. over where they spend their own social care budgets for support that changes the landscape of how you deliver that mm. and I think this isn't about blaming charities because actually a lot of the time funders have got a lot to answer that and I say someone who sits on the board of, of a funding organisation I've sat in loads of funding committees before is particularly for social care, if you're delivering contracts for local authorities, there's very little wriggle room to be innovative and to change and look at alternatives because a lot of the time you're having a competing price and you're delivering high volume services to lots and lots of people. But actually being aware that there might be organisations out there who are not part of your sphere, but who might transform the way that you work and actually not being aware of that right now it might become too late by the time you are aware of it. I guess the question beyond that is thinking about, well, do you work with these organisations? Do you try and collaborate with other third sector organisations to deliver something similar? Um, And there's maybe something in there as well, I think, for the kind of bigger umbrella groups and membership bodies to try and wrestle with some of this stuff. So in Scotland, um, there's an organisation called CCPS who kind of membership body for a lot of the social care charities that work up here and they've been doing some really interesting work looking at things like uh, data as a decision making tool or how do we pull resources on understanding data around social care and how we can transform services around that Um, and I'd like what I'd like to see is more membership and umbrella organisations taking on some of that responsibility because I think the danger is if you're a really small charity the idea of you competing with a startup that's just being given £4 million of investment mm. is terrifying. And actually, it's probably unrealistic. Is yeah. you need to pool resources with other organisations to really think, what is this going to look like? So have
0: you got examples of that happening?
1: The charity sector's done this stuff really well in different ways in the past. If you look at things like you know legislative change and campaigning, mm. that that's not often come through one charity being a sole voice yes. in a space. And I think if we can take that same logic and apply it to digital, then I think there could be huge change that comes as a result of that. I've not seen a huge amount of that happening, to be perfectly honest. And I think part of it is around, it's a really competitive landscape. So if you're thinking about, you know, you're a social care provider and you're going to develop a platform that allows you to deliver social care using digital tools, and that's going to be completely revolutionary, are you going to invite another partner in that space who you might be competing Mm. for a contract with? Yeah. So it's really difficult. I don't. I don't think there's an easy answer. But what, I guess what I'm saying is, it needs to be part of a much broader conversation.
0: And infrastructure organisations, you feel, have a role in
1: that. I think so. Yeah, and I think. What in, could that look like? I think. I mean, infrastructure organisations could work with some of the bigger funders, whether it's government or national or community fund, to think about. Well, if we're going to do this, can we? So, if you look at actually some of the some of the. F- funds at the moment where they're asking if you're going to apply to this fund it has to be a partnership approach you have to be coming in with another charity so that yeah so national lottery have been really good at doing this and i think if we could if we could if we could apply that approach that could work really well but equally within that giving people the support to work together because it's really easy to just go we will just work in a partnership but actually it's quite difficult and it's quite time consuming and I think there's almost a stage before where we need to support people to work in partnerships and we need to think about what, are the, what do the legal mechanisms and frameworks look like around that. So if you're de- developing a digital platform, who owns the IP around that? If you've got four charities that come in and build something together. Mm. It's almost like at this phase, it's like we need to work rapidly to think like what could this look like and be really aspirational about it. It sounds like um,
0: what you just described could be a good job for you.
1: Thanks. Yeah, that'd be good. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'd like to. Um, but I think, I mean, I think, I think the National Lottery are doing. There's quite a lot of good stuff in this space. And I think it t- it ties in with another thing. There's a danger that people see digital as still being quite niche, and therefore, when they apply for funding, they apply to digital specific programs, which are few and far between. Mm. They're often quite specific, yeah. or they're for tiny amounts of money, and actually funders need to be thinking about how do we get digital into mainstream grants programmes. So that if I, you know, if it's a Supporting and Children and Families Fund, it's a big major fund in Scotland, how do we push people who are going to apply to that to think about digital interventions as well as face-to-face? Mm-hmm. How do we support grants officers who are going to assess those applications to know, is this value for money? Is this a sensible approach mm-hmm. that this organisation's taking? Mm-hmm. So it's kind of, it's on both sides. I think a lot of funders aren't comfortable about that. Not because they don't want to fund, but they, do they have the skill set in-house to make the right decisions? And some of them will and some yeah. of them won't, or it might be quite kind of patchy. Um, and for
0: that to be quite relationship-based, like, oh, I feel like I'm going bullshit bingo, but for the service development to be kind of quite iterative between yeah. the grant giver and the grantee as well.
1: Yeah, every funder that I ever speak to, none of them ever say right, you've been given three years of funding, the way that you deliver that can never change over the three years and if it does, we'll take all your money from you. Like, none of them want to do that. None of them talk about that. The problem is there's still a significant chunk of of charities out there who think that's what's going to happen and even when they know things aren't going the way they should and they have an inclination as to the change that needs to be made, they're too fearful of going back to funders to talk to them about that process. Mm. And actually most funders want you to come to talk to them about that. So I think yeah, yeah. just even even the language and how we communicate around that is building in that area of change that you've spoken about, that that should just actually be a given, not just come to us when something goes wrong, mm. but actually the idea that you apply for funding and you try something for six months and it's just going to look the same for the next two and a half years beyond that is kind of ridiculous. Mm. So I think we need, to, we need to build in more support about getting charities comfortable with service design approaches, understand their users, learning from change as they go, without the need for big, high-cost intervention. So I think there's more about getting people who work in funding bodies comfortable with supporting people through that type of change. Mm.
0: Cool, OK. That sounds really interesting.
1: we just like critiqued the entire funding world, haven't we? <laughs> yeah.
0: I was going to have a rant a little bit about a really cool charity... I won't go into it, but basically they they got through to the final few for some multi-year funding, really good conversations with them and feedback from them, and then they didn't get the funding, which I totally understand that they can't give funding to everybody, right? But their feedback was like, well, you know, if you cut this bit out, then it would be lower cost, and if you did this and that, have you thought about changing the model a little bit? And maybe I'm a little defensive because I love this organisation, right? But I'm like, you're just telling us to dilute the model, to dilute the impact, to fit a box for you so that it's a lower cost per person. And it's cheap. Two funders who I've spoken to recently have been like, do you really need to include um, your core cost in there? I'm like, yep. Yeah. yeah, that'll yeah. be going in there. Yeah. Yeah. And to be honest, I've actually recommended to them that they, they sort of say, yeah, in line with, you know, some really great work that ACF are doing around stronger foundations and stuff like that. We know that a lot of... Funders are taking this sort of stuff on board. I don't be like we only want to fund the direct delivery stuff. This is the cause. So that's my little random. That's, that's
1: a fairly yes, yeah. I think that's a fairly stuff. valid rant. Yeah, totally.
0: Cool. I want to get something practical mm-hmm. for people to take away from the yeah. podcast. Okay. So, like, where should charities start with digital? Okay. Well, get a digital trustee. Get on yeah. the digital leaders group. Yeah. Next year. Yeah. Because to popular yeah <laughs> um employ you to do some work yeah that's no, definitely so. <laughs> that's that's definitely <laughs> that's the on the to-do <laughs> list yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah yeah um
1: i've got some other stuff though. do you want me to yeah yeah so i mentioned some of the stuff that scbo are doing um the charity digital code so cast i mentioned previously and zoe mr has been really heavily involved in the- if people google charity digital code they'll find information but for me that's a really good framework which underpins this kind of notion that it's not about digital transformation, it's about digital evolution. And it gives people some of the kind of key areas that you should be thinking about, about leadership and culture, about using data as a decision-making tool, about thinking about low-cost, off-the-shelf technology that's flexible rather than one big, giant, expensive system. Senior leaders and your staff and your board can look at the Charity Digital Code and think it, you know, I think there's seven key principles in the code and look at these seven key principles and think, where are we on that journey Mm -hmm. Um, there's a digital health check toolkit that scvo have got it takes you through some of the kind of key areas you may want to think about so you know how cyber secure is your organization how much is data being used as a decision making tool do your leaders understand anything about digital and it's almost like a Mm self-assessment and then at the end of it it'll spit out some recommendations so that's a really good starting point We've kind of spoken about it a lot, but I think that fundamental thing of really understanding new users and what they want, and that can be a mix of things. So it could be a mix of using some of the research that's out there already. So if you work with older people in a certain community and someone's already done really robust research in that area, how you might use that as well as some of the work of speaking to your users. Thinking about what support for service design is available in the areas that you work in. If you're in Scotland, there's some good stuff in other parts of the UK. It'd be interesting to kind of explore what what that Mm. looks like. Um, There's a couple of good books. There's one called This Is Service Design Doing, which has got some really practical stuff. You know, people do entire degrees in service design. But actually, if you're a small charity and you want to implement some really simple interventions to work with your users, there's some really good practical stuff in that book, which shows you some of the simple workshops that you can run with people. There's another one uh, by Louise Down, which came out a couple of weeks ago. I think it's called Design and Good Services. Some really simple stuff that I think people should start with. So right, this is one that's like a total bugbear of mine. is online forms, right? So online forums are not like high-level digital transformation. But for a lot of people, that is where they'll transact with your organisation. So classic ones like, um, I want to take part in your fundraising event and you've told me that I'm going to abseil a fucking bridge somewhere. And I'm like, yes, I want to abseil off a bridge I've Googled Abseiling Off Bridges for charities and I've found okay, you. Like, as, I yeah. I, I, so I've landed on your page and you're the top result for Abseiling Off Bridges. I get on your page and then there's loads of information. There's videos and I'm really excited. But actually the ability for me to sign up for it isn't there. And then at the bottom, there's a little inquiries email address and I click on it and then it opens up a thing in Outlook. I have no idea what I have to ask you or where this is going to go. Any other information I need and actually a simple online form there that might be a callback form because I don't want to make that decision straight away. Mm. Or you can also put the registration form on there. And again, this seems really obvious and lots of charities are obviously getting very good at this, but that simple step would be the bit—the difference between me deciding to do that with your charity versus deciding to do it with someone else.
0: Yeah, making it easy so that so that being on your charity's website isn't like a passive experience. Exactly. You can actually yeah. be like, oh
1: yeah. Yeah, Vol- volunteer yeah, recruitment well. as well so like literally like eight out of ten charity websites i go on volunteer recruitment usually involves going through about four pages i eventually get to a page where i can actually apply for a volunteering Mm -hmm. opportunity and either it's again a vague email address or i have to download a word document now imagine (laughs) i don't have (laughs) yeah so i don't have uh, a laptop with word on it and i'm i'm on a mobile device and i've just left school and i want to do volunteering for the first time And now what I have in front of me is a really badly formatted Word document that I have to fill out on my mobile phone and then I have to email it off to a member of staff. And I don't know when they're going to reply or what they're going to do with my information. I guess data, like data in organisations, unless you are a charity who's got the resources to really get to grips with that, you know, it tends to be, you know, there's a fundraising database, there's a volunteering database, there's a kind of weird thing over there that's kind of a database, but it's actually an Excel spreadsheet. And there's these silos of information, none of which speak to each other. Most people don't know that half of them even exist in their organisation. Yeah. So never mind, like, you know, is this a complete GDPR minefield? But if you are the chief executive organisation of that organization or the board, how are you making decisions based on data if it sits in these weird and wonderful silos? So, And it might be as simple as we don't have the money for it not to sit in those silos. And actually what we're going to do is a simple stopgap is we're going to use a tool like Tableau, or Microsoft Power BI, or Google Data Studio, and we're going to wrangle some of that data, and we're going to have a dashboard so that our leadership team can make sense of all this data, and we can think about in a single interface, pulling in stuff around, volunteering and fundraising. So. But just getting to grips with data in 2020 needs to be on the radar of, of every charity, I think, personally. Mm. That's my ranty list over. Is it? I wondered I if so. you were going to turn over. No, it's
0: like 74
1: pages of just other rants.
0: <laughs> cool. Okay, that's really good stuff. Helpful stuff. Thank you. Shall we finish with? And I forgot to put this on your brain Is there a book, person, or ethos that has inspired your work?
1: Oh.
0: Deep. I know.
1: That is really deep. So. Just gonna
0: reel one off as well. Amazing. He's <laughs> <laughs> just gonna go. So is this person.
1: So there's a couple of people actually. So when I first started out like doing this kind of work in twenty ten, there was lots of interesting stuff going on in America. So it's actually someone who passed away recently, which is quite sad. So John Hayden.
0: Yeah.
1: Who yeah, did you see that? Yeah yeah. I just saw on Twitter, yeah. yeah. So he spoke. So we used to run a thing called Be Good Be Social, which was kind of informal kind of meetups for people who were interested in social media for social good. And John actually spoke. so He joined us remotely, so we had an event at the Scottish Parliament. So this was this was years ago, and he was talking about like, really in the early days about Facebook as a tool for social good before Facebook become like one of the most evil companies in the whole world. <laughs> um, and so people like him would have answered your question actually there, did Really, oh in any way, shape, John or form. Aiden. John, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. And there's just there's just loads of people I think in this sector doing interesting stuff and sharing it for free it's not like you have to get in some giant agency for a big long-term piece of work because a lot of this learning is out there it's just about joining up the dots and thinking how you're going to use it yeah that's
0: really
1: good thank you thanks for having me
0: Here are the three key learnings from my chat with Ross. Firstly, get some digital expertise on your board. If you don't have it, it should be on your risk register. Secondly, data. Even if it's in different places across your organisation, Ross mentioned a couple of tools that you can use to create a dashboard to inform decision making. So no excuses. Thirdly, there is a lot of free information and free tools that you can use. For example, the digital code and the digital health check from SCVO. So you can start your digital journey right now. Thanks for listening. Hope to catch you next time.